Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everybody. Rick here from Fueled by the Outdoors, and I'm here to tell you about a wonderful company, Saddies, custom ammunition and gun works. Aaron Satterfield and his family have been turning out some awesome game loads lately. Uh, I've been using the Saddies Fatties uh, turkey loads, and i got to tell you, they stop a bird dead. Chris uh, used a 20-gauge this year. I used the 12. Josh used a 20. And uh, my son actually killed one with a 410 this year with uh, one of the Saddies loads. And my God, do they put the birds down like crazy. Aaron Satterfield and his family have a wide-ranging array of ammunition, custom game loads, predator loads, turkey loads, the Saddies Fatty, and also they do gun work. Please get a hold of them with any questions that you have in terms of your custom ammunition needs. Go to saddiesllc.com. That's S-A-T-T-I-E-S-L-L-C.com and tell them that Rick from Fueled by the Outdoors sent you. Curved buck down, baby. Oh my gosh, that was freaking awesome. This is my first public land buck. This is my second set of the season. I can't even. Oh my gosh, I just heard him fall. I just heard him fall. Uh. I just shot my Kentucky buck. Welcome to Fueled by the Outdoors. I'm your host, Chris Leppert, and tonight I am co hosted. By with four, two, uh, <laughs> am uh, with Josh Luck here. Josh, how's it going? Doing pretty good. How is everyone? Not too bad. Um, tonight we have a really special guest that I'm excited about. Um, his name is Alan Summerford. Am I am I pronouncing that right? You got it, man. Okay, sweet. And uh, Alan is here to talk about. He's here to nerd out with us on native plants so alan how's it going tonight man man it's going great um excited to be here heck yeah so josh 
I'm going to let you take over <laughs> and I'm going to try to contain myself for as long as possible. Yeah, Rick isn't here to keep us on track, so I guess I got to try and <laughs> My keep babysitter's us on track. gone. <laughs> uh, Alan, first and foremost, just thanks. Thanks a lot for coming on. We really appreciate it. Um, this is kind of a podcast Chris and I especially have been wanting to talk about and, and have a conversation with someone. And, and we actually got your information from Jacob Myers and Andrew Maxwell from the Southern Outdoorsman. And they kind of pointed us in your direction and said, Alan's the guy to talk to. So we've been. We've been really excited for this one, so thank you. Absolutely, man. I I, I don't know. I, I'm probably not the most knowledgeable on native plants, but I'm the most knowledgeable or one of the most knowledgeable about having native plants implemented into your hunting strategy. Yes, if you want to get is- crazy into native plants, you know, Kyle Lobbarger is, is the man, and there's some others too, but... Yeah, Kyle's Kyle's one of the guys we want to talk to at some point, but specifically, you know, implementing natives into like the hunting strategy and implementing that and and kind of your tactics is one of the things we really wanted to harp on because it's one of the things that that Chris and I have started to really pay attention to and kind of implement in our tactics over the past just couple of years. Um, And we feel like it's really made a difference in what we're doing. Um, Absolutely. just, Just to start off, give for our listeners that may not know you just kind of give a background of who you are kind of how you got involved in the outdoors and how you grew up and then kind of what how that has led into what you're involved into today well i was born and raised right here in faultville alabama it's a little small town in north alabama most people in alabama haven't even heard of um but i'm on a fifth generation cattle farm um my family's always you know ran some cattle and uh my great granddad was you know kind of buying land around and then when he would find some land close to home he would sell some and buy some and so our farm here in north alabama was kind of scattered all over the place um but it's all within you know six or seven miles of each other and uh, my granddad he was an extremely good businessman and um he you know he he kept the cattle going and everything too but he went a little bit farther and he Wanted to go to medical school, but he had some uh, health issues with his eye that uh, wouldn't allow him to study like he needed to and stuff. And they told him, you better quit or you're going to lose your other your good eye. And uh, so anyways, he kept on, you know, striving and he wound up having an old country store that, you know, supplied everybody around with beef and and pork and pretty much anything you could think of, whether it be socks or guns or just a just a good old country store and he he kept on building up from that and he started a nursing home and uh managed a nursing home and he went to start investing money in land and he found some land down in west alabama that was really really cheap and a really really smart investment and uh so that's kind of how i got started into the out outdoors with hunting um when growing up around north alabama we didn't have any deer Um, we had some ducks that was some pretty good hunting um but there wasn't really anything to hunt around in north alabama at all when he bought the land down there in the 80s it was loaded with deer and so he started going down there to work and we put cattle down there as well well then he started hunting a little bit and it was first time he had hunted and he was probably in his 60s i guess when he first started deer hunting but uh, when I got old enough, as I begged from the time I was nine years old for a BB gun and finally got one. And then 
begged and begged and begged to go deer hunting. And finally he took me when I was 11 years old. And so he was with me and, um, put me in a shooting house and on a green field and was with me when I shot my first deer and, uh, you know, taught me everything he knew about it, which wasn't just a whole lot, but it was a, it was a starting place. And he, he got me out there and got me interested in it. And then I, you know, had a passion for it. Um, so then, you know, growing up, I was hunting with him a lot. He was with me when I killed my first turkey. And um, then I went to uh, college at Auburn University, War Eagle to all you out there. Um, we, uh, I studied ag business. And while I was there, you know, I was hunting a lot of public land until I became friends with some people that had private land around there and uh, got to have you know, tons of really, really good connections, really, really good friends down there and saw a lot of different properties and stuff. And when I got done with college, I moved back home. And by that time, deer kind of started moving in around home. And uh, so I'd taken everything I'd learned and made tons and tons and tons of mistakes and uh, started killing, you know, really exceptional deer for the area. And, you know, kind of took what I was learning here and implemented it down in West Alabama started killing really really good deer down there um then uh and i'm still managing the cattle farm and everything too and then came time i felt like i needed to make an investment and me and my brother we we bought a little farm up in tennessee which was completely different type of terrain and habitat and hunting than what we were used to down here in alabama but it was just another learning experience and learning the new habitat and learning different things and now um that place is growing extremely good deer. I mean, my son, last year, he's only eight, but last year he killed the biggest deer we've ever killed on the farm, and it was an absolute giant. I mean, it was a big deer for the area, too. But uh, just taking talking? all of those things. I'm sorry. How big are we talking? Um, I hadn't scored it yet. It actually is at the taxidermist. I'm supposed to be picking it up. and probably going to pick it up this weekend, but it's 150 class 10 point. Ooh, that's a, yeah, that's a good that's deer. A, hell of a deer he's he's solid he's really really solid and you know for the area when you know a 130 class deer is a really really good for that area so 150s it's pretty special i mean i i didn't even know people around there and then people started finding out about me killing or my son killing that deer and uh people started calling me and stuff so like it it was a big deal but uh that's awesome but just learning, I, I've done it all, man. I've I've tried to food plot my way to success. I've tried to feed my way to success. And everything that I have learned is that um, habitat, native habitat in particular, is where it's at. It's where you get the most bang for your buck. And just learning about different things on the cattle farm, implementing it into the wildlife farm, and actually using the cattle to help me with some of it in some cases um, has led me to the native habitat project where I, I started noticing different plants and noticing um, different species of plants and wound up running into Kyle Liebarger and becoming really good friends with him. And that's when my whole knowledge of native plants really took off. And he kind of, he kind of steered me in that direction and kind of helped me along a little bit started identifying plants i mean we it's kind of might be a little bit weird when guys are sending 
pictures of plants, flowers and stuff to each other. But man, we, we really enjoy it and <laughs> love to love to see if we can stump each other and, and have a lot of fun with it. I love it, dude. So you found the right people to talk to. So um, before I ask you my question, I'll just tell you just a mini story. So Josh and I um, have a piece of public we're hunting and we were really having trouble finding very many pretty good deer. And it's tough because there's no, there's no ag to key in on. And, you know, no matter how much we talk about it, it's tough to break the cycle um, that we've lived by and been taught our whole lives to not look at a bean or cornfield or, you know, whatever. And so we found this field and we knew that more than likely it had not been planted and that it had really good, uh, you know, grasses and stuff growing up in it, you know, natives. And we walk up on this field and look and we just kind of looked at each other like, look at all the diversity that we have right here. This is where we're going to find big guy. And then literally we go into an area. I won't really describe it very much because we've got, we got people like hawking us on the spot. <laughs> and, uh, but essentially we looked at an area on a map and felt that it lined right up with that native field. We went in there and the buck was asleep. Clearly, we got to 45 yards before he finally stood up and sort of, I wouldn't even say tore out of there. Like, you could tell that he was deep in a sleep. Like, he was trying to get his bearings a little bit. Um, <laughs> but he's he's hands down the biggest deer that we have ever seen on that public, uh, including harvest pictures uh, from websites and stuff. So, um, nice. really, really big deer, and it just... You know, everything just keeps coming back to these damn native plants, man. I, I, um, you know, I, I drove really far not, not long ago last Friday to go scout a spot and, um, it was like almost eight hours and picked a field on a map that I felt was a native field, uh, roll out, get there by daybreak get out of my truck, glass the field, pick out a hell of a deer. And here we are again in natives, which is, you know, surrounded by vast bean fields everywhere. Um, so again, you know, and everybody's focused on that ag. So, you know, part of me does wonder if part of it is like a pressure thing where everybody's so focused on beans during early season that, these bucks really don't see or smell anybody or deal with people, you know, and basically these freaking weed fields. Um, but I, I know that there's a lot more to it. So, um, so first off, I want to start with, you know, you talked about kind of adding native habitat to your farm. Um, what kind of work goes in to natives versus let's say a, you know what your classic bean field per se um well first of all you know you got to look at the farm is it a timber farm and uh and if it's a timber farm you're probably not going to be very successful 
growing a bean field you may be okay on a on a fall plot and you may can push out a big enough spot to plant some beans or something like that but you're going to spend a whole lot of time and a whole lot of money trying to make the land be something that god didn't intend it to be and oh, wow. so you're going to use what nature has given you what has been feeding these critters way before we ever stepped foot on this part of the earth you're going to be using that to your advantage and so spend your time working in your timber to increase the habitat and that may be cutting trees it may be killing trees and it's going to be using fire pretty frequently um, now granted you may not be burning very frequently in bottomland timber but you're going to be managing the timber appropriately there's going to be a lot of trees they're not doing you any good they're in fact they're impeding the oaks or even impeding whatever native plants could be there and you're they're starving they're starving the ground from sunlight so you're trying to open up the canopy you're trying to bring sunlight to the floor to where all of the browse species are at a deer level um, typically everything we see especially when we're consulting is a farm that maybe was clear cut 20 years ago and now it's grown up into a lot of trees, high stem count. When you walk in there, there's really not anything on the forest floor except for some brown leaves, maybe some multiflora rose, which is a non-native invasive, um, and a few other privet or something else. That might be the only thing green that you even see on the ground. Well, the seed bank is there the, in the soil. You just got to get sunlight back to it. And so you're going to use a chainsaw, you're going to use some herbicide, and you're going to use some fire to bring back all of that native habitat. Why do you believe that natives are better, basically? Okay, for instance, when do you typically plant a crop of soybeans? Uh, May, June. Okay. When do deer start growing their racks? Uh, yeah, April, March. Okay. I mean, well, as you soon know as they pop off. Yeah. So, do you know what is greening up in April and March? Yes, I do. <laughs> Your natives. The natives. Yeah. One of the first things you're going to see is some blackberries. They'll start popping up little bitty leaves on them. A lot of a lot of different weeds. There's everybody calls them a weed but they're most of them are called weeds in their name but they're but they're very very beneficial forbs and legumes just like beans are a legume we have a ton of native legumes also that are greening up as soon as the last frost is over and those things are greening up and feeding your deer putting putting antler mass on and body weight back on way before the first bean is ever even planted in the ground. For instance, corn's planted a lot earlier in beans, but mm -hmm. corn's not growing your deer whatsoever in the time frame where they just got done with the worst part of the year, the winter time frame where they've been chasing does, they've ran themselves ragged, it's cold, it's wet, it's miserable. Well, corn getting put in the ground's not doing them any good as far as bringing their soil their, or their body condition back and starting to put on antler growth whereas your natives are out there i mean a lot of your natives even in before green up when you're cutting trees down there's woody brows 
those little buds start getting, they start swelling and getting a little bit bigger where you've cut a tree down and it re-sprouted a little bit. Deer are consuming those really heavy in the wintertime. That's, that's helping them get closer to reaching their potential if they've got that on the landscape. Whereas corn and beans, they're really not doing anything until midsummer. And corn's not really doing them anything. It's just a carbohydrate in the fall that is super attractive to hunt over. And it might help them gain a little bit of weight going into winter. But as far as them gaining weight after winter and in the springtime frame when they're growing their racks, you know, beans don't do it, corn doesn't do it. But where beans do come in is a late season. You know, if you've got beans planted later on in the summer, some of your natives may start playing out in August. Whereas if beans are planted a little bit later, they might start playing out in September. Um, that's the little bit of a time window where beans may be more attractive than natives. Wow. Yeah, one of the things, so I thought you were kind of going to go with my sort of theory, if you will. I found one piece where the deer are constantly feeding in the natives and here in Ohio and a lot of other places, you know, we end at the, or we end, Jeezel, we open at the end of September. A lot of places around us are October 1 and beans are pretty well yellow around here for the most part, except for a few exceptional fields and they are very few and far between. Um, it's like mid-September when the beans start to really turn yellow and uh, by the time you get to the end of September, probably 90, 97, 98 percent of the fields are fairly yellow, which I don't I don't know this to be true or not. And you're more than welcome to uh, drop some knowledge on us. But I've heard that the deer actually kind of shy away from the beans a little bit before they start to turn. Would would you agree with uh, that? One hundred percent. OK, the only time beans are really even you know attractive down here is when people do like a double crop maybe they planted wheat and they harvest their wheat in june and as soon as they get done harvesting in june they plant back beans those beans might be green by the time deer season opens up but it's a short window but the majority of people when they're planting beans they're not planting right after wheat they're terminating yeah. Yep. the cover crop and planting beans early. So they're harvesting before fall season gets here. Yeah, it's it's been interesting. So I'm seeing more of that here lately. Like I couldn't pay for that two years ago. Um, but what really turned me on to this was in 2020, a lot of farmers just, I don't know what happened in the market or whatever, um, maybe COVID hit people. I don't know, but whatever happened, a bunch of fields here in Southern Ohio and in Kentucky on public just didn't get planted. Um, oh, wow. I don't know if the price of the seed was up or what the deal was, but there were a ton that were just left to grow up. Well, I was pretty depressed until I started looking in those fields as I was driving by and could not believe what I was seeing <laughs> and and I've really just started to convince myself over the last year or so so you know I keep coming back to that like it's just so unreal to me how with you know you all you hear 
from all these people everywhere like, oh, deer can't survive here or there because there's no ag. And then you listen. I don't know how many of the um, deer hunters you follow, but there's a gentleman that Josh and I follow pretty closely in Idaho named Troy Pottinger. And this guy's killed 170, 180-inch deer in the mountains of Idaho. And you hear all these people in all the regions that are not the Midwest, you know, talking about how they don't have big deer because they don't have ag or, you know, whatever. And I'm like, well, you're going to need to explain something to me because this dude's out here in Idaho getting it done on deer that you would shoot in the most coveted unit of Iowa. So I need you to explain that to me. And then listening to that guy, he's talking about different natives with different protein levels that destroy beans and other ag. And um, it just, it blew my mind. So it's kind of, kind of encouraging to know though, because I know what, you know, you, you hit on, um, you know, what's, what's greening up well before the beans, which is natives. Well, I know what's hanging around well after those beans turn yellow too. The freaking natives, they're there all the time. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah, you on something right there. I I went out and had that pulled up. I know we was going this way to compare, but just kind of off the top of my head, you know, like pokeweed, um, strawberry bush. Um, a lot of these little plants and stuff right here are, are, are very, very similar, even higher. Desmodiums is another one that are even higher than in protein levels than what soybeans are. And like you said, they will last for a longer period of time. Not only are they great for the deer to browse on, but they're also awesome for turkeys and quail. In fact, turkeys and quail depend on these pollinator plants to attract bugs and insects that um, they depend on to survive. And if there was more of the native type, type of stuff, we would not be seeing the decline of quail and turkeys that most of the country is seeing right now because it's all in production in some sort of fashion, either ag, um, cattle, or even being developed. Um, so these mm -hmm. natives are, are playing a much, much bigger role in the whole entire ecosystem than what most people realize. I agree a hundred percent. I noticed that when I travel to states that are pretty heavy in ag, I don't see many bugs. Don't get me wrong, bugs exist there. But when I go to places like Tennessee, Missouri, West Virginia, Eastern Ohio, um, where you get away from the ag and therefore all the different things that they spray and fertilize and god only knows what um while i hate it the ticks the mosquitoes the flies all the bugs bugs that god didn't know he created you know are <laughs> popping up left and right and you know as a as a guy who literally lives and breathes turkey hunting um you know those things get out there and bug in a field and you we always notice here that we'll have fields where you'll have strutters, you know, like clockwork. And then all of a sudden they go out and spray that field and it's complete trash after that for, for the entire season. It's terrible. And I also, I got to believe it's not the best thing for, you know, the wildlife, which, you know, I'm not trying to like come on here and 
scream death to the farmers or anything like that. But um, I just feel like maybe we're going about some things in the wrong way and we could improve upon our habitat. You know, there's all these people, you know, are calling for answers for wild turkeys. And I think there's a lot of things going on that are against them. But man, habitat, like you talked about using fire a lot. Every state I know that does a lot of those controlled burns and opens up the canopy and allows these native plants to grow really well, man, they have great turkey populations, or at least significantly better than what we have. We don't, I don't know if I've ever seen a burn on public land that was on purpose uh, here in Ohio. It just doesn't happen. Um, so, yeah, I'm. Yeah, it's kind of. It's kind of mixed down here in Alabama. Some some of the public land, man, they are really after it, and they burn frequently. Um, and then, because there's two public land places pretty close to me, and I hunt one of them. But uh, one of the public land places, man, it they are so chock full of non-native invasive species and tons of row crop and tons of unmanaged timber but they manage the whole thing for ducks 1000 percent. they don't care about the deer very much they 1000 percent manage for ducks and so it's it's a it's a refuge for for the ducks but it could be so much better if they would you know do a little bit of that management and it's one of those things where you know just talking about the the bugs and everything man when you walk in or when you when you go into a place that has a lot of natives you hear it you you step out of the truck and immediately you hear it like it, it is a there it is buzzing there is there is bugs there are birds i mean everything you can think of is just teeming with life in these native areas and you know we have so many species that you may have one one caterpillar for instance, a monarch. I mean, they they can only eat one plant. I mean, yeah. they're they're eating they're eating milkweed, you know. And there's a ton of other species that are the exact same way. The monarch gets all the you know the hot because they're you know endangered and everything. But like, there's multiple other species that are the exact same way. And we've lost so many birds because we've lost the plants that the bugs that those birds depended on are all gone so the the plant goes first then the bug that depends on that plant goes then the bird that depended on that bug goes and it's just a chain reaction and if we don't start doing something now it's going to be even more of a problem you know we've we've already pretty much lost quail turkeys are following fast behind them but there's so many other birds that nobody even cares about or even thinks about that we've already lost that are just already completely gone and as a farmer I, myself i am a i'm a cattle farmer and i will admit i have done things the wrong way before i knew the right way um, i have sprayed every field that i could to make sure there weren't any weeds for my cows i wanted all grass out there a monoculture of non-native grasses is what i had and i've learned to man there's some areas that are not the greatest for cattle pasture or hayfield. There's some little odd areas, man. 
leave some of those odd areas out here or there. You don't have to go edge to edge in every single field and try to make it productive. It can be absolutely productive if we will just quit bush hogging every square inch, quit spraying every square inch. Look for those areas of your farm that you can diversify these, these areas and quit making everything wall to wall a row cropper, wall to wall bush hogger, wall to wall a cattle pasture. Try to implement some of these smaller spaces because we've already lost so much. Even if you just start little, you can make a difference. Dude, I'm the guy that everybody hates in my neighborhood. I leave, I let my clover flowers grow so high. I let that clover grow <laughs> up. And I'm in an HOA neighborhood too. Um, we got rules and rigs here, but everybody, you know, everybody wants this golf course of a lawn. If, if I could, I would literally strip all that stuff out, leave the clover and just plant it full of natives and never, I'd, I'd mow a walkway, a good walkway yep. and that's it. And what's funny is, you know, I don't know how people don't see this. You go into all these areas with all this CRP, well, ESG, you know, all these grown up areas with saplings and, and, you know, what we call weeds. Um, and, you know, you see baby turkeys take offline, you see rabbits everywhere, you jump deer, it's teeming with wildlife. And it's funny that you brought up the, the insect uh, comment where it, you can just hear it. And it, it's the truth. Like, I feel like the damn cicadas sound a little more healthy in those areas. They're just loud as can be. Yeah. And it's just, you know, and like you said, it's just a place that God intended. And I feel like we're fighting that a lot. So what what do you have, Josh? I had a question as far as like your hunting, Alan. So when you started paying attention to the natives and kind of managing for that on your own properties, as far as like your deer population goes, like what did you see as far as your like your deer population? What did it do for for the population? And then kind of what did it do for your hunting in general? All right. So I'll just basically the farm that I'll start with is the the Tennessee farm. When I first bought the farm, um, you know, I came in there. I was like, man, I'm gonna plant some great food. Now the guy that had it before me, he managed it. He managed it pretty well. He he had cut some timber, um, and he planted food plots. And he just he didn't shoot a bunch of little deer. Like he tried to shoot trophy deer and you know and that kind of thing and shoot some does. But when I came in there, I was like, man, I'm, my food plot program is going to be so much better than his, and I'm going to turn this thing around. Well, food plots didn't really turn it around. And then I thought, man, I'm going to move into feeding. Um, I'm going to feed these deer all summer long the best protein stuff that I can feed them. And man, I spent I spent a buku of money feeding these deer. Purina Antler Max pellets, the best thing you could buy. And it got to where I was I was feeding a pallet about every 10 days. <laughs> and man, I was like, dude, this is getting way too expensive. I got way too many deer to be feeding like this. And so that's about the time when I started I started um watching stuff about food plots. And I almost went and bought me a grain drill and a crimper. And man, I'm so glad I didn't. Um, because I was going to take my food plot to the next level even farther. But then I saw a thing about a savanna. And I was like, dude, that looks absolutely amazing. 
and the wildlife and the habitat of the savannah is like I, I love that like i'm going to go create that and so that was my first venture into natives and this is kind of how i got to meet kyle leibarger so i i decided i mean i knew timber really really well i was on the state forestry judging team when i was in high school in ffa and so i knew my trees just as good as most foresters do and i kind of know the value of them and i know what makes a good log and what doesn't and the tree species that are most valuable and which ones are not and which ones are actually valuable for for wildlife as far as deer and turkeys go but what i didn't realize is that the whole sunlight aspect so but i go in there and i'm gonna haul off and i'm gonna make this thing a savannah and i've got this the most beautiful white oak um sort of a hillside it, it sort of makes a bowl it's mostly south facing some west facing and uh just sort of wraps around this big little bottom field that i've got and that's where i'm gonna make my savannah and i had a decent turkey population and my deer herd was okay well when i did that cut um that's kind of how i met kyle kyle's a forester as well and uh, i said hey man i'm trying to make a savannah and i got a bunch of flowers won't you come by and see my farm so he came by saw the farm he goes well you might just think about a little bit different instead of trying to leave all your biggest white oaks you might cut your biggest white oaks leave some of your smaller white oaks because some of your big oaks may get blown over after the timbers cut around and i was like you know what that's probably a pretty good idea i'm gonna take the money cut my big trees and I'm gonna strategically leave a bunch of trees that I want that are gonna be fire tolerant. And then that's gonna be my savannah. And man, it was the best thing that ever happened to that farm. Immediately, the first thing I saw the biggest difference in was the amount of food that it put on the landscape. I cut about 20 acres, maybe not even quite 20 acres, um, the way I sort of chopped it up. And man, the immediately, I didn't feed that year. I was too busy to feed. Immediately, I saw an increase in weights in the deer. The deer weren't bony after raising two fawns in early bow season. The bucks had fat all down their back that they didn't used to have, even when I was feeding the most expensive feed that you could possibly feed and as much as I could possibly spend to put out there. Um, the amount of quality bucks increased. And then the next turkey season, um, well not the next turkey season, but the turkey season after the cut. So it had been basically two years post cut. It was almost impossible to turkey hunt because there were so many jakes. There was like 18 jakes. Every time I would set up on a big long beard to call him in, these this group of 18 jakes would just come running in and completely ruin the hunt they would not leave you alone they would gobble and run the gobbler off and they would stand all the way around you just dumb as you know a rock and you couldn't call a gobbler in because no matter where you went they were going to come to your call and they were going to beat the gobbler to you and the gobbler was just like no nah, i'm not fighting 18 of you and so that right there was proof in the pudding i was like my goodness you know all it took was doing a little bit of work in the timber and i was lucky enough i could have a timber harvest to accomplish this but a lot of people aren't in that boat and but that that same exact mindset needs to happen in the timber to see those kind of results 
our doe weights, when I first bought the farm, our mature does that we would shoot in October time frame, October, November, would be 85 pounds. And most of the time is you that, could see ribs on Is that on. gutted or not? No, live weight. Live weight, okay. Like the mature bucks on the farm were 150 pounds. And, you know, they weren't in that shape as those, but they weren't expressing the potential. Our does now are weighing 120 pounds. And I'm Ooh. talking back fat. I'm talking back fat on them. You open up inside their belly and it's just gobs of fat. If you ever kill a big buck, a big mature buck, you know, before he's been run down in, you know, in the rut, you know how much fat's inside their gut. Well, that's what our does look like now. And they didn't look like that wow. before. And now our bucks, you know, we still haven't killed a 200 pounder up there, but we're killing them 185. And that's way better than what it was before. And I, I, I don't think we've reached the pinnacle yet. It's still climbing. Um, it's, you know, it's taken, let's see, I cut that timber. I started cutting it. I guess it was 20. It was, it was right. It was right when COVID hit. So it was 2020 when I cut that timber. So I, you know, I'm just a few years in of, and I've had wow. a couple of burns on it and all that. So like, and then now I'm not just using that little spot. I'm going around and the other part of the timber managing it as well to mimic that. And so the, the sky's the limit. And like, I know that it's going to get better and it it's getting better every single year. And then harvesting a lot of does on the place too has, you know, you got all these native plants and everything, but if your deer herd is so prolific and so um, such a big herd, you know, they're going to kind of eat themselves out of house and home. They're going to select for those, you know, most, the best species of natives. And if you've got so many deer that they're, you know, they're, they're over browsing all of the good natives and allowing all the, the bad non-native stuff to thrive, then, you know, you, your timber can go the wrong way. So you're going to have to manage your habitat along with manage the herd. But I promise you, it's worth it and it has made a huge difference on that farm that you know we've, we've taken weights the size of the racks everything has benefited turkeys have exploded i'm talking we it was no trouble for me and my eight-year-old son i mean we we tagged out in two weekends <laughs> like it's it's and it, it, it made the hunt it even made the turkey hunting better you know not that it's just promoting more turkeys but it's easier to hunt them because there's so many more there and there's so many more opportunities to set up on them now because of the way the habitat lays out that it, it made it a whole lot easier to hunt than what it was previously all closed canopy big open timber hey everybody rick here from fueled by the outdoors and i'm here to tell you about a wonderful company saddies custom ammunition and gunworks Aaron Satterfield and his family have been turning out some awesome game loads lately. Uh, I've been using the Saddies Fatties uh, turkey loads, and I got to tell you, they stop a bird dead. Chris uh, used a 20 gauge this year. I used the 12. Josh used a 20. And uh, my son actually killed one with a 410 this year with uh, one of the Saddies loads. And my God, do they put the birds down like crazy. 
Aaron Satterfield and his family have a wide-ranging array of ammunition, custom game loads, predator loads, turkey loads, the saddies fatty, and also they do gun work. Please get a hold of them with any questions that you have in terms of your custom ammunition needs. Go to saddiesllc.com. That's S-A-T-T-I-E-S-L-L-C.com and tell them that Rick from Fueled by the Outdoors sent you. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Are you accepting real-life friend requests? (laughs) (laughs) absolutely i love turkeys i love turkeys so much i i feel like most people i mean when they see like a field just full of natives they they don't at least in the midwest they don't really associate that with like lots of food and they they see it and they're like ah that that may have some but it's not it's nothing like an ag field um but what you're saying right is i feel like is the exact opposite and i feel like that's what chris and i have seen over the past couple years so do you know about how, like, what the yield is on, like, some of your native fields as far as, like, pounds per acre as far as food goes? Yeah, in a native field, it can be, it just depends on, you know, the quality of the field. But a native a native field can be somewhere between 1,500 to 3,500 pounds per acre. Wow. You can also have very similar results in your timber if you reduce the basal area, get sunlight to the ground. You know, closed canopy timber, you're looking at 100 pounds per acre um, to, you know, to feed deer. And most of that is going to be acorns dropping in the fall. Um, Not really a whole lot goes on in the timber during the summertime or even other times of the month. But just, you know, that's, that's how much you're leaving on the table by not managing your timber. Um, when you start cutting trees, you get woody brows from the stump sprouts, um, and a, a tree that's growing and you cut it down. Well, when that tree resprouts, hardwoods, when that tree resprouts, it's putting all of the nutrients from that big giant root ball into those little sprouts. Well, now those sprouts are extremely high quality brows. They call them mineral stumps. And there's way more nutrients in that than it would have been if you if a deer would have eaten a leaf 
that was hanging down from a giant tree. The everything gets diluted when it's going into into an entire tree. But when you cut the stump and those sprouts come back up, all the nutrients are packed right there into those little bitty stump sprouts. And that's where a lot of your food comes from is just that. But then you also get all of the native plants that are now able to express themselves because they are getting sunlight that come up around those stumps. And then that's where you're getting, you know, you get all that herbaceous response, that summertime herbaceous response that just blows up once it gets sunlight and is feeding deer, turkeys, quail, all wildlife. What, um, as far as that yield, you were talking about the 1500, the 3500, I believe you said, Com comparing that to like a normal bean field or like a regular food plot that someone might plant, what is, what's that difference? Well, I mean, if you're, if you're, if you're putting all the inputs in and all that kind of stuff, it's going to be similar, but it's going to be for a longer period of time. Whereas gotcha. a bean field may be just a month or two whereas this is going to be from you know april till october whenever y'all have a frost or whatever um, gotcha. so like you're you've got a you've got a bit a larger window of food and if you're in the timber especially up north but it's just as important in the south people don't realize woody browse is so important um those stump sprouts and then when we go in through there and sometimes we'll hinge cut a few trees um, I'm not wanting to hinge cut a whole entire forest, but, you know, you hinge a few trees here and there, certain species, um, like your dogwoods or your red buds and stuff like that, really, really high quality deer food. And it, that just puts another um, large amount of food on the ground at deer level that they can utilize. Otherwise, if it was standing, deer can't use any of it. So is the point of hinge cutting to basically keep the tree alive and growing stuff close to the ground is that the objective or does it yes, eventually die they, they will eventually die especially if you're using fire um, but the hinge cutting does give a little bit of structure um, I, I would never recommend going to a, a block of woods and hinge cutting every tree um, you would just hinge cut a few and certain species um, flush cut quite a few and then you're going to kill quite a few Okay. Like your sweet gums, um, some poplar, and different trees like that that really have no deer will not usually browse them unless they're just starving absolutely to death. Those are the type of trees you want to kill. Um, you know, just completely just use herbicide to kill those. Um, and then, you know, some of your other trees like your dogwoods, um, elm, ash is a really, really good one that deer browse really heavily in the south. And even your oaks, like people think, oh my, you're going to cut down an oak? Well, there's a lot of oaks in the woods that are not ever going to be good timber, probably not going to make very good um, mass production, but they can absolutely make really, really great brows. And so those crooked, gnarly looking little oaks that are, you know, struggling to survive, that's the one you want to just go in there and just flush cut that joker. Let it mineral stump sprout and it's going to feed a lot of high quality forage to your deer and then select select your oak trees that are you know really really good timber quality or really really good acorn production take those trees don't you protect those but cut around them you know just like your pines uh, y'all probably don't have a lot of pines in ohio no. but 
No. Um, but, but you know, you don't want to have your your main crop tree competing with a bunch of other junk trees around it. So get rid of the junk around it to where that tree can be released and it can actually produce more acorns than what it was doing before when it was suppressed by all of the other junk trees around it sucking nutrients out of the soil. I like it. While we're on the subject of oaks, I have some sort of deeper questions for you. Um, I asked the guys in our thread if they had any questions they wanted me to ask, and our buddy Bob wants to know, when will we see the rebound or release of the American chestnut that has been GMO'd to be blight-resistant like the Chinese chestnut? Know anything about that? Uh, very, very little. I know there is there is a push to get that released, but then you have a few people who actually have resistant chestnuts on their farms, and they are concerned with the genetics being because um, once they introduce these these new chestnuts. You know, the genetics of the ones that have survived, and they've taken some of the genes from the ones to survive that are there you know, to make them blight resistance. There's a whole kind of a one side against the other side. Um, so they're they're working all of that out. And I don't, I'm not the one to ask on that. I do know that they're working really, really hard to get the chestnut back on the landscape, but they're having to, they don't want to mess things up because, I mean, we've done so much in this country to bring things in and mess things up. The last thing we want to do is haul off and do the wrong thing too quick, too fast, and not understand the consequences that it could have. Okay. I like that. So when it comes to <clears throat> oaks, do you feel like oaks produce better or worse on a certain side of the hill, northeast, west, south, um, better than others, uh, bringing deer, you know, to those areas in the early season. Absolutely. So you have you have some oaks that are they're designed to be on drier type sites. That's that's your west and south facing slopes. Um, yeah. They are they're like your post oak, your white oak um black oaks stuff like that they 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 will thrive more in those drier sites and are used to having fire whereas your red oaks typically will be more on your north slopes and down in your riparian areas where a little bit wetter soil they they typically don't like fire as well um they can tolerate some fire but not nearly as much as the white oak species like chestnut oak is another one um, that you'll see on your your west and south slopes they like they they don't mind fire one bit in fact you need to be burning in those areas and uh and so that's that's kind of the difference you've got a lot of trees you know that's part of the problem with our forest now is there's so many trees growing on the slopes that they were not supposed to ever be on um you got you know cedars and poplar and maples and and elms and stuff growing on your south and west facing slopes and they're making those sites wetter than what they should have been 
fire will not go through them like they should have been. And so we're, you know, we're losing a lot of those areas that should have been post oak, white oak, savannas. Okay. Man, I like that. <laughs> Josh, Josh, you want to take a turn? <laughs> yeah. We're just kind of throwing questions at you right now, Alan. We're just nerding out. <laughs> yeah, I, I have lots of questions. <laughs> uh, going, going back to just, just the natives. Uh, where was I going with that? So we kind of talked about natives kind of versus ag as far as uh, yield, like the food, nutrition, and protein and all that. So when you're, let's say if you were to step piece on a new, on a new property, when, when you're in, let's say there's a field that's grown up, as far as, and I, I feel like I already know the answer to this, but I just want to clarify for some of the listeners. You're wanting diversity in those fields, in those native fields, compared to like a monoculture, correct? Because then you have more diversity of food. It could have other higher quality foods in there. Is, I'm assuming that's correct. Absolutely. Diversity. You're also going to have diversity of structure. You want diversity of heights of different plants. You know, you want some plants that are going to be short, some that are going to be medium, some that are going to be tall. And then you also need diversity as in you, you want some areas that are a little bit bare, some areas that are a little bit thicker, brushier, some areas that are so, somewhere in between all of that. So the more diversity you can find in a field, the more productive it is for all wildlife. Good. That, so that's some of the things that Chris and I have noticed um, just over the past couple of years. Um, I, I just recently moved back to Ohio, but I moved to Kentucky for, for two and a half, three years. And when I moved to Kentucky, I didn't have any private to hunt, and I was all just public. And where I was finding some of the more mature and some of the larger deer were on these uh, just grown-up fields. And at the time, I didn't know anything. I'm like, this is just a you know grown-up weed field. Nothing's going to be here. And it turns out that were that's where the bigger deer were. Uh, but they were very diverse, and, and they had some invasives in it. But it it provided a lot of cover and a lot of bedding and then there was just browse dispersed throughout throughout it so there was like honeysuckle thickets all around the edge uh we had autumn olive just autumn olive patches kind of mixed in some briar patches and stuff and it just made for awesome cover for these deer to get away and they had all the food they would want um where they could you know they didn't have to, they just had to get up out of their beds and they didn't have to move far at all um so that's some of the things that we've been looking for um on these out-of-state hunts and just new pieces of public and stuff that we've been we've been hitting um, one because we feel like they're overlooked people just see them and you know they're like ah, there's nothing there they're paying more attention to the ag two they're they tend to be harder areas to hunt so they there's not a lot of trees that you can easily get into with like a stand or anything like that um, so it's a good place for them to get away from pressure and then three they just seem to have everything they could want as far as food goes and nutrition goes. No, that's, that's absolutely right. And you, you know, you're talking about on public land, you know, that the pressure thing is probably, probably more of a deal on the public land than it is on private. But, you know, I'm doing the same thing on private land. You know what the things that y'all are going and looking for to be successful on public land that's what we are going and creating on private land. And don't just think 
that an overgrown field, you just walk away and let it go. That couldn't be farther from the truth because, I mean, you'll you'll see a lot of fields that are just let go. They will not have the diversity of a field that's being burned. And I'm not talking about just burning it whenever. You, you're going to burn for different reasons. There's going to be some times where you're going to do a growing season fire because a lot of times these areas will want to grow back in trees, especially in the south. Man, we get so much rain and everything wants to turn back into a forest really, really quickly. So you have to use some sort of manipulation to bring these areas and keep them in early successional habitat. So we use a growing season fire to try to help um, set back the, the woody species. And, you know, a growing season fire also promotes more native forbs and legumes, whereas sometimes you may need a little more cover. Um, you may need more grass. And so a dormant season fire will bring in more grasses and uh, you'll still get some control of the woodies with a dormant season fire, but you kind of get more like a top kill. Same thing as just going in there and cutting a tree down with a chainsaw, it sprouts right back. A dormant season fire will basically do the exact same thing. It's like cutting that tree down um, and then it sprouts right back. So you basically can cover 40 or 50 acres in just a few minutes with fire that would have taken you a really long time to cover that same amount of acreage with a chainsaw. Mm -hmm. um, but you want to you want to keep it in that early state because generally if you don't manipulate one of those old fields within five years, it won't be that great anymore. You have to go in and uh, sometimes a two year, three year, and at the most a five year. You've got to manipulate it that many, that often. Reminds me of nothing more than a clear cut, only you got to manipulate it a little, a little sooner. Clear cuts are not that great until they're, you know, right around that two or three here. And then they're great for a few years. And then they get like really, really, really thick overgrown to where there, there's, there's no, there's nothing on the forest floor. Uh, once those saplings get so high, the grasses are gone. It's crazy to walk through those things. Honey woodcock that's, at the top. <laughs> that's exactly right. And you know, like the those clear cuts is a perfect example. Um, you know, sunlight to the ground. Man, year two and three, four maybe, are phenomenal. You've got tons of diversity. But with no manipulation, it reverts back. And sometimes it reverts back to worse than what it was before. And then it becomes an absolute desert at year six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And then it's going to be that way for another 20 years or more until it's able to be cut again. Yep. I agree. It's it's pretty crazy to really put those pieces of the puzzle together in my head because I always felt like, you know, cover equaled deer. But I remember specifically, I went out with a buddy, John, to scout some spots in eastern Ohio, and I targeted this drainage that just had clear cuts on every damn directional slope you could find. And I was so excited, and then I got back there, and, uh, you know, this is where I started to learn that what you see on Spartan Forge or on X is significantly older when you show up in person 
and right. uh, what looked to be like a year or two uh, old clear cut was like eight, seven, eight, and it had you know fifteen foot tall um, poplars. It was all poplar too, so like you're getting nothing. <laughs> uh, yeah. I didn't find much for bedding and anything. Everything. Don't get me wrong. They're they're still in there, but not man not like a lot of those other places especially when you get a good good younger clear cut so man well and then also you've got you know with all that kind of stuff in there man it makes it really hard to pinpoint where they're going to be when they're going to be there and that sort of thing in that sort of area you know, the other thing that i kind of hadn't got to is when you cut your timber um majority of people that cut their timber the, the loggers come in there and they take, they're going to take those big white oaks. And I mean, I'm, I'm not afraid to cut white oaks. I will absolutely cut some white oaks. Uh, I'm not worried about it hurting my deer hunting whatsoever. But the problem is, is when a logger comes in and takes all of those really awesome species out of there, there's no management behind. Like they basically, they, they come in there, they cut the timber, they get a check and they walk away. And what happens is, is now the understory was not ever manipulated. A lot of times those poplar and maple and elm and ironwood and all of those trees are just left. Now they've got to jump on all of the oak species because the oaks needed sunlight to, you know, germinate new oaks and everything. Well, they didn't ever get that sunlight for a very short time. Now all of those other species are taking over and fast growing and it will never be oak hickory forest again without manipulation. Wow. That's the truth. Um, I will say some of the clear cuts that we, we see, they do loot, uh, leave some of those lone oaks, but a lot of, I don't know, I'm kind of a snob when it comes to oaks. Um, I don't really give a damn about a chestnut oak until it's December or January. So um, I'm more looking at like white oaks and the post oaks and, uh, you know, anything I can use early season, basically. I like chinkapins and burr oaks a lot. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I target the hell out of those. But, uh, yeah, they, uh, they leave a, a decent amount of them to grow um with no competition whatsoever so i'll have to go back into some of those clear cuts this fall um once we get some time and just check and see what the acorn crop is like we're loaded here in ohio kentucky indiana seen lots of reports all over our tri-state area of uh a crazy oak crop coming in both whites and reds yeah, we look like we're going to have a loaded year, too. Everywhere I've been, I've just seen tons and tons of acorns. I'd be interested to to hear some people's theories on how you go about dealing with that as far as your hunting strategy. Because, God, when there's food everywhere, it, that makes it real tough, especially when a lot of people open at the end of September and into October when those bucks basically bed 35 yards from their favorite white oak and you know you've seen him in the field all summer and now he's bedded 35 50 60 yards away from that oak never leaves 
<laughs> and then goes and finds the next one, beds down, and, you know, the old October law, as they call it. Well, the October lull is not as big of a deal when you've got your um, your bedding thickets in place, and you've got you you've got really 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 good bedding, and then you don't have just big giant open canopy timber. Um, open canopy timber with a whole lot of oaks in it is absolutely just a crapshoot. You don't know where they're going to be, how they're going to use it. Like you said, they could bed on by their favorite tree, and that might change two weeks. Yeah, if you're lucky. I Last year, it was very interesting. Last year, as I scouted my way through three different states, I found that with those oaks, you basically had like a 10-day window other than the bur oaks. The bur oaks seemed to drop for quite a while. I don't know if they were just loaded or what, but man, you had like a 10-day window before you had the next food shift. It was crazy. And I'm I'm really just learning all this stuff as I go, right? Like I, I used to hunt private land, sit over a corn pile and do, you know, 80 sits a year. And I killed my fair amount, amount of good bucks and everything. But, um, this is just a completely different way of hunting, learning to identify the plants as best I can and everything. But I feel like, I feel like that makes you way more dangerous. And it almost, with the scouting thing, you almost feel more connected to the earth and the animal. I don't mean to sound like a hippie or something, but I mean, it's the truth. I, f I feel way more of a connection and when like just a different feeling when I put down a deer in general because of all the work and time spent knowledge, etc. Oh, no doubt. And that's, that's the fun of it, man. Like, for the amount of money I've I've spent in buying a farm and setting it up and do all that, man, I could easily pay to go to a whole bunch of different hunts in the Midwest oh, yeah. and kill and kill bigger deer. But it's yep. it's not really about that to me. Like I know that I'm going on the property and I'm making that property better than what it what it was when I found it. That I'm making it better for all wildlife, and that I'm making the I'm making a difference in the, the size and the quality of the animals that I'm trying to chase. And like, to me, that's, that's just as rewarding as me going to Iowa and, and shooting a big deer up there that I really didn't have much to do with other than finding it and killing it. Yep. I agree. hundred percent. Um, so I do have a couple of questions I want to hit on and then I'll let Josh talk again. Um, <laughs> Do you have any literature, websites, YouTube channels, anything where our listeners, but really me, uh, where I can go learn, <laughs> where I can go nerd out on some of this stuff and just learn all of, how to identify all these different plants that you're finding in these these meadows and, you know, in the forest and everything? Um, what are your recommendations there? Native Habitat Project. Um, you can find them on Facebook. Is that Kyle? Also, that's Kyle Lobarger. Okay. Um, man, he is, he is really, really, really great. Now he's, he does most of his stuff in, you know, North Alabama, but I mean, he was in, he was in Illinois just a, a couple of weeks ago or so, maybe longer than that now, time flies. But, um, he, a lot of the plants that we have here, you'll probably have some of those same ones there. 
Um, and then he also has TikTok. I think it, I'm not on TikTok. All I have is Facebook. But uh, it's Native Plant Talk, T-O-K. Um, that's his TikTok. And he, man, he posts, he'll post a video or two a week. Um, he's out in the field every day on some really, really cool, diverse areas all the time. I mean, this guy, he'll be driving down the road and all of a sudden a flower catches his eye. He's going to oh, pull yeah. off. And if he, if he sees that flower and it's something really, really cool, he's probably going to knock on the door and say, Hey man, can I, can I manage this little area for you? And most of the time they'll say, yeah, sure. And then he'll wind up burning their yard for them and, <laughs> you know, crazy stuff like that. Um, but he, he has tons of really, really cool and they're very, very interesting. He's, he can capture an audience really, really quick. Um, but he's, he's very entertaining to listen to and watch when he finds these plants and is very educational as well. Um, but he's, I he's definitely, uh, him. yeah, uh, I'm pretty sure that's the gentleman. I, I want to say the last video I saw, I believe it was him, um, talked about how fires these days are com forest fires are completely different because everybody's wanting to like not have forest fires and we've got this these crazy thick woods now and so the fires are burning longer and hotter and killing the soil and not doing the actual job that they're intended to do was that him that's right that's him okay yeah and i man i thought you know it is interesting because forest fires do seem to be getting worse and burning longer and you know kind of I guess out of control, even though I, I feel like we as humans, we want to control everything. And sometimes I think you just need to step back and, you know, let go and let God, so to speak, and, and let nature run its course because, man, those fires do so much. Well, unfortunately, and, it, and I'm not saying unfortunately, but we we will never be able to burn the way the landscape was burned pre-settlement. Um, the last thing we ever want is for anybody's, you know, property to be damaged or anybody to be hurt or anything like that. So you have to be mindful when you're burning. But, you know, when nature would have burned, it would have been an intense burn. Um, you know, fire would have raged up hills and it would slow down going down a hill then it would rage across going uphill the next hill. Um, and you know, it, fires would have lasted a lot longer back then because, you know, you'd have an area burn and then a log would, uh, burn by one way and then a log would catch on fire and that log would smolder and then the wind changed. Then all of a sudden the fire would go the other way. Um, you know, it was just crazy because there were no property lines back then. There was no, you know, structures to worry about, no roads chopping things up the way it is now. So fires would have just raged across the landscape and, you know, they talk about how there was not very much firewood back when the Lewis and Clark were, you know, traveling and everything, you know, because most of the most of the area had been burned and it was just dotted oaks scattered across the landscape with big open grasslands and fields and all types of native flowers. And they talked like they couldn't even sleep at night because of all the turkeys just gobbling all night long. Um, you know, that's. We'll never get back to that again, but 
people are so so scared of burning and all this kind of stuff and like we have to we have to start bringing it back where we can and being mindful of like you know you're going to lose some trees because of this but that's how nature would have done it and we want to bring everything back to where it, it was historically to an extent and you know we use fire to manipulate habitat but we do it in a way that you know my place my farm it'd be hard to get a fire if a, if a wildfire came across there my farm would stop the fire because i've done so much burning on it that my farm's basically a black line when it gets to it. and if there was more farms like that and more people doing that then these big giant wildfires that started in northeast alabama and go all the way through gatlinburg would not be man I'll, let me get let me get those days back where i can't sleep because there's so many turkeys gobbling <laughs> I'll, I'll take that that's right. Um, do you have any seasonal recommendations as far as like, let's say, early season versus the rut versus late season, like certain native plants that people could look for and kind of target um, when it came to, you know, targeting big bucks, basically? Well, you were talking about chestnuts. You didn't really like them till late in the winter. Well, it's kind of the opposite on the farm in Tennessee. Um, on opening weekend, I've got three chestnut. I've got a lot of chestnut trees on the farm, but I've got three chestnut trees that every year always have acorns. Every year are the first ones to drop and it's like clockwork. Now, those trees are not great after the wild oaks start dropping, but that's one of the, those are the three trees that right off the bat, like I know I will be hunting those three trees on this farm come opening day because that's going to be the hottest trees on the farm. Um, and then like, you know, in, in, in the, um, you know, on into October, when people talk about the October law, that's kind of when I start focusing in on um, where I've done the the timber harvest or, you know, a timber manipulation. A lot of times um, there's a lot more browse in those areas that are still thriving, whereas some of your stuff in your old fields may have started kind of getting more mature and playing out. But where I've done timber harvest um, and then ran fire through there, it's like it sets it back to a little bit later date of when it gets more mature. Those areas are really, really good in October. You may have a few wild oaks dropping scattered across them and through them, but those edges of those make extremely good transitional zones. And the bucks feel super secure and safe feeding through all of that because they always feel like they're covered while they're feeding as opposed to being like in an open field or open timber. Um, that's kind of the areas I key on. People call it the October lull. That's where I'm going to be. It's a little bit more thicker. It's a little bit more brushier. It's not like super, super thick. Like you can see through it, but it's a lot of herbaceous and a lot of woody browse. And it's like the deer walking through there, constantly feeding on multiple different species all at the same, same time. And they're 
spending they're, they're kind of just slowly easing through it they're not you know on a mission to get somewhere they're just browsing along right along the edge most of the time um later season um you know in the rut i'm definitely going to be on my thickest bedding thickets um we go in and we manipulate areas um to make them extremely thick um, this is not a great big area um talking like an acre half acre to an acre up to two acres maybe um but you know when people are not seeing deer in the peak rut they're in the bedroom they're in the thickets they're not going to be out on a food plot like hit those hit those thick areas and then not only that you know bucks are they may they may be with a doe for a little while and then that doe's done with him well then he's looking for the next doe and guess where he's going to check he's going to check those bedding thickets like Down so inside yes key in on those bedding thickets during the rut like that's pre-rut peak rut post rut um you know different times of the day or whatever i may be more in transitional zones between those but at certain times i'm going to be hanging pretty doggone close to those thickets um and then you know my food plots i love food plots i still plant food plots even though i have natives um we kind of didn't really talk i sort of skipped over those but um you know i'm hunting my food plots early season in october as well I typically will kind of hunt the acorns in the morning and in the afternoons, man, our bachelor groups of bucks will be on those food plots nine times out of 10. We, we have really, really, really good success early season while they're still in bachelor groups on food plots. Um, but then that is, I just think it's, uh, you know, it's that, um, everything's switching it's kind of when frost hits everything's kind of dying down in the native world and the food plots are kind of they're more succulent it's kind of they're you know they're just coming up and and starting to do really well they're still in that young tender stage um there's a lot of moisture in it you know most of the time that's our driest time of the year a lot of the native plants are pretty dry they're not getting water from the native plants as much whereas these cool season crops pull a lot of water up into the plant and they don't have to drink water near as much as what people think because they're getting a lot of the water from the plants themselves. And so those food plots are a water source and just a high quality, young, tender, attractive food source. That was going to be my next question is, do you think that it correlates with water content? So absolutely. we are. <laughs> um, <laughs> wow. Oh, God, this is awesome. All right, Josh, I'm going to let you say words. <laughs> I just want to go back uh, for a second as far as the resources go and what Chris was asking about. Um, you mentioned the Native Habitat Project and everything Kyle's doing, but as far as, like, uh, quick reference stuff, like on phones and that, do you have any recommendations? I know there's, like, picture this, and I think, like, I think the iPhones have like stuff built in now where you can take a picture and hit like identify in that. Yeah, there's several of them. Like picture this is a good one. iNaturalist is the one that I use. And uh, you basically, you'll take a picture of the plant. Try to take really good quality pictures. Don't just snap a photo. Um, sometimes you may need, to, may need to put your hand behind it. If it's got a flower, take a picture of the flower and also take a picture of the leaf. And uh, you can put a couple of pictures in there and then it says, what did I see? 
it'll give you a list of different plants that it thinks it might be and you can look at each one of those it can tell you if it's native or where its origin is it can tell you a lot of information about the plant it can also tell you what other people nearby if they have found that plant or not um, one of kyle's big thing is he loves finding county records or even state records um, we found several county records like the plants never been found in this county by anybody before and even state records wow. um, so that's that's one of the cool things that kyle really gets into um, but uh so that's that that's a really good thing to see that's iNaturalist okay. and it's got man tons of different things on there you can like get on there and say like well what's a savannah look like in my area and this is all in the app what's a savannah look like in my area um, and then you can click on like different habitat types that are local to your area and then you can start seeing what everybody else has found close by well then that just gives you an eye for when you're out there in the woods hey i saw that on that app and here it is um, it's just a great way to learn. I'm always learning. Like I, I have a terrible, terrible memory. I will see a plant and then may not see it again till next year. I'm like, yeah, I saw that plant. I know exactly where it was. I can't tell you what the name of it was. Half the <laughs> names are so silly and ridiculous that like who in the world came up with these names? But then I've got a picture of it and like I snap it. Oh yeah, I do remember that. But it's just really cool to learn those plants and and know what's out there. And there's it'll blow your mind how much is actually out there and then it'll also help you know if man that's an invasive i need to get rid of that thing as soon as possible hmm. heck yeah well it's on the phone now yeah so i have a quick question about the iNaturalist because there's two different ones there's iNaturalist and then seek by iNaturalist one has a uh like the little picture is like of a bird and the other one's of a leaf yes so the one of the bird is the one that i use I have not used the seek, but I know people that do. And I think it's more like you just kind of like take a video of the whole plant. Mm. So for some people, they may like that one better. Um, I just, the one I've, Kyle's one said, hey, look, I like iNaturalist. And so I haven't questioned him. I have just taken it and run with it. But, but picture this is another one. And I, there's two or three other ones that are pretty good. Another way, if you don't know what it is after you've done it in that, um, in that, in one of those apps, um, Facebook has a page called Native Habitat Managers, oh. and I'm a part of that group. Kyle Lobarger is. Guys at Land and Legacy are as well. Um, several people are that are managing native habitat, and then tons of botanists and just people that really nerd out on plants way, way, way more than I do. Um, you, you could just take some pictures on there and you'll have 15 people tell you what it is for the fun of it. Um, so that's another, it's a group on Facebook called native 34,000 people. It's yes, it's big yeah. and getting bigger. Joined. Um, so like there's another way you can learn cause people are always posting different plants and what they're trying to do to try to help native habitat. Um, and that that's people from across the United States. It's not just locally to our area um, people from all over are posting in there constantly um, so you can see some really really cool stuff on there um, about what people are seeing in their area and what they're doing to try to manage it and a lot of really, really good info about you know different stuff so if you got a question on there there's a lot of people on there that are real quick to answer you 
Well, we just hit the jackpot here. <laughs> so, for all my private land people listening, what programs are available for property owners to get investments in the like the native grasses and such? Yeah, so if you'll go to your local NRCS office, um, there are tons of different programs to sign up for. Um, maybe you just want to start burning. Well, there's programs to sign up that you can have um, Paul share to have fire breaks um, put around your property. Um, if you've got maybe a glade where it's, you know, like a rocky area that's dry soil, sometimes these glades have some of the absolute most diversity of anywhere because they haven't been disturbed by row crops or cattle farmers or people just recreationally bush hogging. Um, there's a lot of money to be made with glade restorations um, where you're going in there. Most time these glades are just overran with cedars. Um, you can get cost shares to help cut these cedars down, get sunlight back to the soil. Um, then there's, you know, pollinator plantings are really, really big right now where you can take a couple acres and plant you a pollinator planting of really diverse species or really diverse blend of native flowers. Um, and we use roundstone native seed um, to get all of our different types of native seeds. They actually have harvested seed from my farm um to put in some of their seed blends then um you can uh there's also native warm season grasses um you know all of these different things can be done on your farms there's also um you know invasive control a lot of farms are just played with invasives and if you can just get rid of a lot of your invasives you may have a lot of really good diversity there that's just being choked out by privet or autumn autumn olive or bush honeysuckle um, there's a million of them kudzu if you're in the south but uh, there's there's cost share options to help you treat all of these invasives there's even um, cost share options to help you do just TSI um, going in there and reducing the basal area 30 percent or 40 percent or whatever you might need to be prescribed um, but there's a lot of different options out there for people there's a lot of assistance the people that want to bring natives back to the landscape and you're not going to you're going to be better off for it the the world will be better off for it i mean we've got less than one percent of the ecosystem that was here pre-settlement i mean we have lost nearly all of it and losing more every day um so do your part to make a difference on your farm or your yard stop planting non-native ornamental trees that will escape out into nature that i'll have to go and fight on my farm um, there are so many beautiful and absolutely amazing plants that you can plant in your landscaping at your house in the middle of the subdivision that can make a big difference i mean our pollinators will appreciate it tremendously even though you may not have much land, you've probably got some landscaping around your house. Native mm -hmm. landscaping feeds native native um, bugs and insects, and butterflies. All that stuff matters. And so try to do your part to bring natives back, even if it's just a little. Can you hit on 
sort of a definition of what the basal area is? Sure. So a basal area is, um, for instance, if you've got a stand of trees, not every single stand of trees is going to be the same, but a basal area is basically showing you how many trees are in that area. And it takes into consideration the size of those trees. So how many sticks and the size of those sticks are covering the landscape is kind of put it in layman's terms. And if you want to bring it down, you want to reduce the canopy by 30% is just a good start um, on TSI to get some sunlight to the sunlight to the floor. Um, so you're going to, you're going to reduce the basal area. So that means cutting trees, killing trees or harvesting trees to do that. I'm glad I asked that question. Yeah. I feel like over the next few years, just going back to managing native habitat on like the private land side and some of uh, the guys that manage for whitetail, I feel like over the next few years, I feel like that's going to be become more prevalent um, just based on like, you know, the native habitat project. I feel like it's, getting more and more light and just more mainstream. And then, um, what was it? I guess a few weeks ago now, I heard, um, I think it was Andre DeQuisto on a podcast. I think it was uh, Mission Whitetail. I was talking about how he was going to let some of his uh, crop fields kind of kind of let them grow. I don't know what kind of management he's doing, but at least let them grow up just in like grass and kind of instead of planting them, just letting them grow. Um, and see what they turn into. And then uh, I think Todd Graff from Bowhunter Die was also doing something similar on some of his farms as far as like not planning and kind of managing for more native habitat. So it'll be very interesting to see over the next few years. Um, hopefully there's a transition to that. I think there's right. a, a nice happy medium between that and, you know, planning your, your ag and, and food plots and that. Well, I had, you know, it's funny you're talking about that because um, we're leasing a lot of our farm out down in West Alabama to row croppers and they do an excellent job. They're really, really good row croppers. They're, they're mindful of, um, you know, natives and stuff like that. And, but, you know, they're, they're, uh, they're making a living off of it. Well, one of them called me and uh, he's like, man, he goes, this part of the field, he said, I need to change it up. He said, I, I need to do some work on it. It it doesn't drain very well. And so I'm a little bit lighter planting it than what I want to, but then the soil's a little bit lighter. So he said, it's just not, because I'm just going to do a lot of work on it. He said, but what do you think about what if I let it go? Would you care to just let it go back native? I said, dude, I would love to let that go back native. Like, I'm glad you're, I don't want you to do a failed crop or do a whole bunch of work to just make a mediocre crop. Like, I can work with that. And a lot of times when a place has been row cropped, it may have depleted most of the seed bank from natives. But what it's also done is it's got rid of all the non-native grasses and stuff that you know, you're going to fight if you're going to go plant one of these native plots. Mm -hmm. So like, it's kind of a best case scenario. He's like, well, hey man, I'll harvest the crop. I'll spray whatever I need to spray. And then I'll even help you plant whatever you want to plant over there. So I don't have to row crop that anymore. So like, this is going to be a huge win-win for him, a huge win-win for me and a huge win-win for the, for the wildlife as well. That's awesome. What is a, uh, what is a row crop, row cropper? 
a row cropper, that's somebody's planting corn or beans or cotton for okay. what do y'all so, call them up there? Uh, we, uh, I mean, so I just call them farmers. <laughs> okay. Um, we, yeah. yeah. I've, I've never, I've never heard that term before, but that, that makes sense. Um, yeah, you plant, I, you I plant your crop up. in a row. Yeah. Yeah. Got, got your crop in a row, but I didn't know, um, if it was specific to something other than that, but that's, that's good to know though. That's a term that I've never heard before. I'm also not, uh, like I don't own my own property or get into the, the land management side as much as I do just learning to identify everything that's already there. Um, but one day with, you know, the good Lord willing, I'll have my own piece to set fire to and kill deer and the whole nine. Well, it's, uh, it's very, very enjoyable. And I, I mean, I, I absolutely love every part of it. I enjoy managing the habitat as much or just as much as shooting a big deer shooting a big deer is just kind of the cherry on top the bonus the litmus test of you know the work that you've done um but i absolutely enjoy the habitat side of it and my little boy he's eight you know, he loves to hunt but let me tell you he knows the difference between a bradford pear a privet and all kudzu and all these mimosa all these invasives and buddy i give him a hatchet and i say buddy <laughs> chop away and i'll come behind and i'll squirt it with herbicide and that tree will be done and dead and we've done a good deed i like it it's also interesting to me that most people use icing on the cake but talking to a guy that's trying to sort of get back to the natural way of things he he's talking about a cherry on top so I think there's a correlation there. I'm a cherry guy too. So, um, well, Josh, do you have anything else before we wrap this up, man? Uh, no, um, Alan, if you just want to kind of give, uh, just kind of tell the listeners like where they can find, you know, what you're doing and some of your content and the native habitat stuff, like where, where can everyone find all that information? Sure. So um, if you go on Facebook, you know, like I said, Native Habitat Project, um, if you would like to have some of this work done on your land, if you don't know where to start, don't know what to do, um, I do consulting, um, especially all over the southeast. Um, and you can email me at hunt at nativehabitatproject.com. Um, I also work under Land and Legacy and uh they're covering 32 states so um we've pretty much got a, a pretty good angle on the market of the native habitat stuff um they're doing an exceptional job of implementing natives along with the hunting strategy and uh and so i'm i'm working for both of them but uh either either one of us and land legacy's got a ton of podcasts that are all talking about how to create the native habitat, the things that they're doing. It's the same thing as what we're prescribing. They go into great detail on all of these aspects of bringing, bringing fire back, TSI, bedding thickets, food plots, all of it. Um, so check them out. They've also got a ton of great videos that they put out um, that are kind of showing these pollinator plantings and um tsi work that they're doing and uh and all that good stuff so either way you can get in touch with us through land and legacy or native habitat project 
man. Dude, I can't thank you enough, Alan. This has been a blast. I hate that I can't sit here for like an eight-hour day and just <laughs> drill you with questions. Um, would love to go for a walk with you in the woods sometime and just let you name stuff. That'd be sweet. Um, Absolutely. Well, that's that's Josh? pretty much what Kyle's doing on the page all the time. So yeah, it's almost like you're walking right there with him. He literally yeah. will find a new one every day. I. I enjoy his videos a lot, actually. That's actually what got me to start asking questions about the people to contact. And then uh, our buddies, Jacob and Andrew from the Southern Outdoorsman, kind of hooked us up with some info. And um, now here we are. So, Josh, you want to uh, wrap us up, buddy? Yeah. I, again, just thank you very much, Alan. Um, really appreciate your time. We've kept you for like an hour and a half now, so we will let you get back to your family and your little ones, and we need to do the same thing. So, uh, thank you everyone for tuning in. This has been Fueled by the Outdoors. I am your co-host, Josh Luck, and tonight uh, we were hosted by Chris Leppert and joined by Alan Summerford. So, until next time, guys, thank you very much. See you guys. Man, thanks so much for having me on. I really enjoyed it. Heck yeah, dude. Thank you. See ya.